So I, I heard a story oh, a while back, and a single mom, she had two little guys about nine and ten, and they were just a handful, and she was at the end of her rope, so she went to see her pastor and asked him to talk to these two little guys. And he said, sure, bring them in. So she brought them in, left one at the playground, and brought one into the pastor's office, and she sat outside the door. And so the little guy sits down, and the pastor's there, and uh, looks at him for a while, and then he says, where is God? And the little guy is thinking, what the heck? You know, and he doesn't say a thing. So the pastor, in a little bit deeper voice, I can't do it justice myself, deeper voice, says a little bit louder, where is God? And the little guy is just frozen. Finally, the pastor, one more time, in his biggest and deepest voice, says, where is God? And the little guy just freaks. He bolts out. He runs out the door past his mom, past the church secretary, out into the playground, and as he reached his brother, he said, you know, we are in big trouble. God is missing, and they think it's our fault. Uh, so it does seem that God is, is, is missing to some degree from our society today. It seems that uh, too often the secular seems to be winning the battles that shape our world. And in that vein, I heard a list of five rules for adults a few months into the COVID pandemic that I kind of dismiss these rules as being silly and unbelievable, but I've thought about them quite a bit since. And I think that they actually sum up to a degree where our secular society stands today. And the rules are, uh, have your act completely together. Two, if you don't have your act together, then fix it. If you can't fix it, then fake it. If you can't fake it, then don't show up. If you have to show up, then at least feel ashamed. So I sense that these pressures or similar societal pressures, whether spoken or not, wreak havoc with many outside the church. And I don't believe that those of us inside the church are immune from the reach of these ideas. I wanted to take a few minutes today to compare these five rules with the four blessings that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5, the first four Beatitudes. They're on the screen um, Jeremy did a wonderful job explaining the meaning of each beatitude last year in his Let It Rain series at the beginning of the pandemic. My goal is to bootstrap off his detailed explanation and look at where these four blessings, these four beatitudes take us when considered together. So let's read through Matthew 5, verses 3, to, three through 6 together. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So to be honest with you, uh, what I'm going to share today is based on a conversation that I had last year with someone very special uh, to me. And then after that conversation, uh, or I had a chance in talking to him, I asked him if, if could I share with him why it was that I believed in Jesus and what my faith was based on. And so he said yes. And then later as I started to write these thoughts down, I realized that I kind of wanted to share these thoughts, these experiences with my immediate family. And so I've shared those with two, and then a bit out of the blue, I get to share it with all of you, my church family. Um, for those of you who have never asked Jesus into your life, I ask that you simply follow the logic behind these five rules and see if it fits your life experience to some degree. Then consider the alternative approach that Jesus offers. The two paths lead 
in dramatically different directions. For those of you who have invited Jesus into your life, then I ask you to consider how you, were, how you are doing in each area that Jesus discusses. If you feel touched or convicted in an area, then I pray that you will uh, talk to the Lord about it, seek wise counsel from God's word, in order to talk to another brother or sister. So let's get going. First, society says, have your act completely together. So this implies that it is possible to get our act completely together, right? Whatever that means, based on our own efforts and strength. This also implies that weakness or fear or making mistakes or losing, and the list goes on and on, cannot be tolerated. This type of black and white, all or nothing criteria is, from my experience, a no-win proposition because none of us can pull it off. Jesus, on the other hand, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who realize that they need help, that they make mistakes, that they don't do what they want to do and they do what they don't want to do, that they are self-centered and weak and can't do anything of eternal value in their own strength. In a word, the poor in spirit are those who recognize they are sinners and do not have their act completely together or together at all. Jesus knows having our act together is an illusion that keeps people from recognizing that they need help. The poor in spirit are blessed because they recognize their neediness as a first step in developing a relationship with Jesus. It is a first step in getting off the world's merry-go-round. You know that in our faith journeys, um, we have different sticking points when it comes to accepting the gospel. Um, I had mine, but one thing that was not difficult for me to accept was the idea that I was a sinner. I can never recall thinking that I had my act together. I might feel good after doing well in a sporting event or getting a good grade on something or getting a compliment for something else, but, but feeling secure about who I was and how I acted was never in the cards for me. Uh, the idea that it was somehow expected that I get my act together on my own for all the world to see would have been terrifying to me. The explanation within the gospel that I had a heart problem was not difficult or demeaning to hear. On the contrary, it just kind of felt true. The world says that we are on our own and figuring out how to be perfect. Jesus says we are blessed when we know that we are not perfect because it is the first step in becoming a child of God. Second, society says, if you don't have your act together, then fix it, right? This again implies that we, in our own power, can fix ourselves and fix our situations. There are no excuses, no room for mistakes, and no grace or forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you have to do or who you have to hurt or run over. Simply fix your act and stop complaining, whining, and feeling sorry for yourself. Of course, if we can't fix it, we can always blame someone else. And it's not our problem anyway. And we happen to do that as well, I think. The world, of course, offers no roadmap or directions on how we fix ourselves in order to reach this nebulous nirvana. But the pull is so strong that we just kind of stumble along. There may be successes and achievements earned along the way, and we may read a self-help book or two, right? But in the end... The target is a slippery one for which there is no real definition as to when we arrive. And if we don't know when we arrive, then we just keep working and working at it until we get exhausted, until we get frustrated, start lying to ourselves, 
start comparing ourselves to others, or simply sit down and give up. I know that's true because I've done all five of those things. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is a second step. It is actually mourning over the fact that we are poor in spirit. It is mourning over the fact that we are empty inside and are sinners who are incapable of fixing ourselves. It is grieving over the fact that our sins cause our Father in heaven to mourn over us. It is recognizing that our sinful actions are not who God created us to be. It is not thinking, okay, let me say this again, it is not thinking that if we try hard one more time, we will get there. It is not blaming someone else. It is not feeling sorry for ourselves. And it is not beating ourselves up. It is simply recognizing that we have fallen short of who God desires us to be and embracing the fact that we need help to change. As Jeremy explained, mourning implies a desire to turn around and head in a different direction. It is a remorse that leads to a desire to change. It is not enough to simply recognize that we are poor in spirit. The blessed are those who move to the next step of being seriously sorry for the condition of their heart. Uh, The Lord saved me at the end of my junior year in college. Um, I went to Fresno State as a junior college transfer without a thought in the world about Jesus. I played golf on Sundays. Uh, I moved into the dorms, and across the hall, a guy named Jim moved into into a room. And uh, Jim was a little bit older. He'd just gotten out of the military. Uh, He was a a funny guy. He had a great sense of humor. He did all these voices and accents, you know. And he was kind of semi-serious about school, which means that he was always around to hang out with. Uh, Steady never got in the way of doing something with Jim. And so Jim was also a Christian who loved Jesus a lot and talked about Jesus a whole bunch. And I I liked him anyway, which kind of surprised me. Uh, But I think I was drawn to Jim because he was unlike any Christian that I'd ever met. Uh, He seemed real, not too uptight, and not too worried about being perfect. But what Jim had that I did not was his ability to make a mistake, do something stupid, and recover, and yet recover from the error of his ways pretty quickly. I, on the other hand, when I made a mistake or did something stupid, would beat myself unmercifully. The funny thing is that Jim's fast recovery never felt cheap or fake, and strangely enough, rather than negatively affecting his testimony towards me, it really strengthened it. That's because Jim's remorse... Um, his mourning for his mistakes was real. Uh, He would tell me what he did wrong. He was very transparent. I never met anybody like that. But he'd tell me what he did that was wrong, that he had told Jesus about his mistake and how badly he felt, and that he prayed for forgiveness. Jim would then believe in faith that Jesus still loved him, and based on the Bible, he knew that he was forgiven. He knew that he might face consequences, and he faced consequences, I guarantee you that. But that was okay with him. He knew that he was forgiven. Jim's mourning for his shortcomings was real, and through Jesus, it led him to life and a quick recovery. I may have been sorry for what I did, but my remorse remorse went nowhere other than to make me feel bad and lead me to a place where only time and a bunch of good decisions allowed me to feel better again. I had no place to go to be cured. Jim knew that there was no place to go to be cured but to Jesus. And Jim's example of calling his sin, sin, the depth of his mourning, 
And the immediacy of his forgiveness was a big part in the Lord opening my eyes to the truth about Jesus. Um, Frank Borum, uh, an Australian pastor um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, tells a, a story um, that in the early 1900s, the White House was being refurbished um, and was in the hands of the painters and the decorators. And two large entrance doors had been painted to represent black walnut. The contractor ordered his men to clean and scrape the doors to be repainted, and they set to work. But when their knives penetrated to the solid timber below the paint, they discovered to their surprise a heavy mahogany with an exquisite natural grain. So the work of the earlier decorator, so far from adding to the beauty of the natural timber, had actually only served to conceal its essential and inherent glory. The morning Jesus is talking about deals with us grieving over the loss of the essential and natural glory that God made us to enjoy and put on full display. The world cheapens who God made us to be by proposing the simple fix of just fix it. The world simply wants us to put on a fresh coat of cheap paint. Jesus calls us to feel the pain of what we have lost as he feels the pain over what we have lost. The beauty of who God made us to be cannot be fixed or duplicated by the efforts that the world coerces us to try. These counterfeit attempts only subtract from the glory of who we are in God's eyes. My friend Jim knew that recognizing sin and truly mourning over these losses was the only way to live. And I am forever grateful to him that for he was willing to share this truth with me in both word and with deed and in deed. Uh, Third society says, if you can't fix it, then fake it. Uh, we're pretty good at this, aren't we? Uh, this means that what is true inside each of us is less important than what other people think of us. The energy that it takes to fake it is enormous and utterly draining. And once we start down this path of allowing the perception of others to control our self-esteem, it is virtually impossible to change. We start living a lie. As a Southern preacher once said, be who you is, because if you ain't who you is, you is who you ain't. So let me say that one more time. Be who you is, because if you ain't who you is, you is who you ain't. And I think that there's a lot of us in here that struggle with being who we ain't. Um, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Whereas the world says, just cover up our weaknesses, fake it and forget about the truth, Jesus points us in a different direction. He points those who recognize they are poor in spirit and are mournful for the condition of their heart to a place of surrender. He encourages us to place our complete trust in God himself. The world says, fake it because there is no other way. Jesus says, surrender to me because I am the only way. As many of you know, I retired from, um, in January of 2019. I was a lawyer for 30 years at AT&T and 35 years in all um, the fake it mentality reared its ugly head for me during the majority of my time at AT&T. It presented itself whenever I didn't know an answer to something and had to ask someone for help. It sounds crazy, but my mind would go to this place that I should know the answer, everybody else knows the answer, and if I ask anybody, everybody's going to know that I don't know the answer. Um, my solution was to spend hours and hours trying to figure out the answer to something that a five-minute call 
to the right person would have resolved. Now, I had a few friends in the department that I was willing to call, but never an expert um, that I didn't have a close relationship with. The fear of what my peers would think caused me to fake it for a long time. I'm talking decades, 15 to 20 years. Uh, Perhaps you thought that lawyers had stronger wills than that. I'm sorry to disappoint you today. Um, But I know that I wasn't the only one in our department that felt that way. And I also know that I'm not alone here today in having these kind of feelings. Um, I heard a description of meekness years ago that I've never forgotten. And it flows nicely with Jeremy's teaching on meekness. Meekness is embodied by a wild stallion that needs to be broken to allow a rider to mount. The goal of the trainer is not to break the spirit of the stallion, but simply to teach the stallion to surrender its will to accept a rider. The stallion remains just as strong and just as beautiful and just as unique as before, but once trained will allow the rider to direct the use of these amazing attributes in a positive and useful way. The stallion reaching the point of trusting the rider to lead is a wonderful example of meekness, like I said. It is a gentleness based on trust in the rider. This is what Jesus wants for each of us. We can't be led and we can't experience God's gentleness without surrendering our will to Jesus' leadership. I have a wonderful friend who plays the flute. He's played all over the world. In the last decade or so, he's played in a symphony down in the South Bay. Um, I'm not a real cultured guy. Like I told you before, I played golf on Sundays growing up. Um, But I remember going to hear one of his performances for the first time. I got there early because I was a good friend. I wanted to hear everything. And so I heard the orchestra or symphony. I don't even know what you call it. Is it an orchestra or a symphony? I I don't know. Um, But I was listening to the orchestra warm up, and it sounded pretty bad. You know, each of the skilled professionals were playing a part of what they were going to be playing, but it was all different, and they may have been in the same key, but it was just chaotic Um, and and a jumble. And it kind of made me think that I didn't hold out much hope for the performance. Um, but then the conductor came on the stage, and the orchestra was quiet. And the conductor looked to his left and looked to his right and raised his baton. And then something magical happened, right? The sound of the artists using their gifts under the direction of the conductor resulted in this beautiful, rich, sweet sound harmonies filling the, the, the concert hall. Um, It was startling and beautiful to behold. The artists were simply waiting for the conductor, right? They each had to trust the conductor to lead them into a beautiful result as opposed to the chaos that was happening when they played on their own. The world says fake it because the truth does not matter as much as how we look to others. The world says looking all together is worth the chaos that living a lie causes, Jesus is saying, trust in me and I will take away the discord and the chaos in our lives and lead us into something deeper and more beautiful. Um, So I'm a slow learner, but after about 20 years, I started to trust Jesus to lead me me more deeply in this area of asking for help at work. Uh, I began turning those fears of what others may think over to Jesus and started working in a very simple way. If I needed help, I would pray and then ask the person who made the most sense for help. Sounds simple, right? Um, I finally allowed Jesus to lead me to the truth, and unlike the stallion example where the rider sits on the back of the stallion, 
I felt that each time I did this, I was jumping into Jesus' arms and he would carry me through to the end result. Um, Let me tell you that trusting the Lord in this small area of life made life way better. Um, I saved hours and hours of time, made new friends in the department as I opened up, and I believe the Lord was glorified in my transparency, and I think I was a better lawyer. It became so easy. I can't tell you why it took me 20 years to figure that out, other than the fact that I let my pride and my fear control me rather than trusting and surrendering to Jesus. We all face different challenges, and we all have different weaknesses. My issue of asking for help may seem kind of silly, but I once heard Billy Graham say, don't pat yourself on the back for resisting a temptation that you've never been tempted with. Uh, Your attempts to fake it will be different than mine. But what I've learned over over the last 30 years is that the world leaves us alone to find our way. And after struggling for 20 years, I could not find a solution in my own own strength other than to fake it. Jesus, on the other hand, is just waiting to come alongside and lead us if we simply will trust him. Fourth, society says if you can't fake it, then don't show up. Give, Give up and hide is the advice. If we are having trouble, can't fix it, can't fake it, just avoid the situation. Don't acknowledge our struggle, Don't acknowledge our responsibility, simply vanish. Now this vanishing can take the form of physically not showing up, but more commonly, we simply withdraw emotionally to the point that we really aren't there. We might immerse ourselves in a diversion, alcohol, drugs, sex, or something that we do well and enjoy as long as it eases the pain that we're facing for a moment. I think we also withdraw by blaming others to the point that it's really not my fault. And we get angry at someone who wants to bring up the issue, or we get angry at someone who we think might bring up the issue. We can also withdraw by living in the past before the issue arose, or by dreaming of a future where the issue has miraculously you know, been, been taken care of. In some way, we kind of figure that if we keep a low profile, wait it out, and remain hidden until people forget then we will get past it. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The world says, Don't show up, hide and give up. Jesus is saying that those who are willing and want to go where Jesus desires to take them will be filled. We have a yellow lab named named Tina. She is about seven years old and is calming down a little bit. But if you want to see her go crazy, we just have to get her leash or harness out of the closet. She knows, that we will be, uh, she knows that we will be going for a run or a walk or going someplace in the car, and she can't wait to go. She is not worrying about where we are going. She's going to leave that to us to make that decision for her. I think Tina is a great example. Once we have surrendered our will in an act of meekness to God, then blessed are those who are excited each day to go where Jesus wants to lead them that day. The trainer doesn't break the stallion to keep him in the stable. The trainer breaks the stallion so that the rider and the stallion can accomplish mighty and wonderful tasks together. Jesus did not die on the cross for us and send the Holy Spirit to live within us so that we can live in a perpetual shelter-in-place condition. Jesus did these things to revive a relationship with us 
and that together with Jesus we can accomplish mighty and wonderful acts of love that God set out from the beginning of time for us to accomplish. Not someone else, but for each of us to accomplish with him. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness is simply the joy of being open to where God is taking me. The world says, don't show up. Jesus says, come with trust and see where we will go together. Does this mean that every place that Jesus will take us is easy or fun? Of course not. But it does mean that he will never abandon us and that in time, we will see that wherever he leads us, we'll work together for good if we love and we trust him. The truth is that we can be led kicking and screaming by God or we can hunger and thirst for the thrill of the adventure with Jesus. You know that people only ride roller coasters, right? Because the ups and downs are fun when you know that you're going to get to the end safely. Um, when Jesus is the seatbelt for our ride in this life, we are safe and can prosper through the ups and downs because we know that he will always be with us. I hate to say it again, but this is another area of growth for me. Big surprise there, right? Um, I like stability and being in control, and I'm not always a big fan of change. I'm kind of a plotter rather than a sprinter when it comes to new ideas. Um, so I'm one of those folks that when God leads, sometimes he has to pull me because my heels are stuck in the ground, stuck in the mud. This is the case even though the Lord has taken my wife Nancy and I down some wonderful and some perilous roads uh, during our walk with him, but we've never felt abandoned or lost hope. I long to be more like Tina. Um, but the beauty of our God is that whether we are like Tina or a stick in the mud like me, that Jesus promises to lead us and fill us when we trust him for the journey he has chosen for us. The world says hide, withdraw, and don't show up because the world has no solution for the difficult issues you may be facing. The world is saying, minimize your losses. Jesus is saying, trust me, hunger and thirst for our adventure this very day because when you follow me, I will see to it that you are filled with my love, surrounded by my protection, and given a purpose in life and death that is bigger and better than anything you could ever imagine. Fifth, society says if you, don't show, if you have to show up, then at least feel ashamed. You know, shame is defined as a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. It's interesting to note that shame is different than guilt because shame represents a negative evaluation of the self, whereas guilt represents a negative evaluation of one's behavior. In other words, guilt says I did a bad thing, but shame says I am a bad person. It seems that the world does a pretty good job of driving us to feel bad about ourselves. Maybe not always, but at different seasons of our life. Um, and even when we don't feel bad about ourselves, our self-esteem self seems to continually hang on a precipice ready to plummet if something negative happens or we make a mistake. Shame perpetuates a, a self-defeating cycle in our lives because it hides in the shadows as life proceeds. We may start to feel better then something happens and we fall back into the same hole that gets a little deeper each time. We layer more shame on the previous shame and so on. Jesus' message is different. He has already said that blessed are those who know they have a heart problem, 
who mourn over that heart problem, who surrender their heart and life to Jesus' leadership and then willingly go where Jesus will lead them. Jesus knows all the skeletons and all the weaknesses that we have in our closets. He knows we are not perfect, yet his consistent message to us is that we are the beloved children of our Father in heaven. Our challenge is to block out the voices of the world which leads us to shame and instead consistently lead to the voice of Jesus who calls us his beloved son, his beloved brothers and sisters. John tells us in his first epistle that God loved us first before we could do anything. This first love, as Henry Nouwen calls it, is what we need to remember. But blocking out the world is hard, isn't it? It's hard if you know Jesus, and if you don't know Jesus, then I don't really think that you have a chance to block out the messages that society continually force upon us. Rather than give you a cool list of three things uh, to do to block out the world, I'd like to share an event in my life that happened 30 years ago and that I still rely on today. This is where I go when I feel the world's body blows. Uh, I graduated from law school in 1983 and started working at a small firm in San Mateo across the bay. I'd accepted Jesus in my junior year, my, in, in, as a junior in college and married Nance after my first year in law school. But to be blunt, I hated working at this firm. Um, it was not the firm, it was me. Um, I did not like having to confront and argue with people every day. I did not, did not like having to talk in front of people, whether in court or in a deposition or in a meeting. I did not like giving advice. I was a nervous wreck thinking what most of you must be thinking, why did I ever go to law school? Um, I did not feel like I was smart enough or clever enough to properly represent my clients. And on top of this, my boss was a screamer. He was a great attorney, but his moods were so volatile that you never knew what was going to happen and what to expect. Um, after a couple years, I started seeing a Christian counselor because I realized that there was nothing unethical or inherently bad about the legal profession. It was my response to the challenges in the legal profession that were off base. Uh, my counselor challenged me with scripture and some other sources to see myself more accurately and to challenge the negative voices that seemed to be overwhelming my mind. It took a lot of work and prayer and counsel from the counselor and others in our church, but I started to get better. Then in 1988, I don't know the exact date, but my breakthrough occurred. Um, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Honestly, I was driving down Highway 101 on the peninsula, driving to the Santa Clara County Law Library. It was a Sunday morning. I know I wasn't in church, but I was driving in there on a Sunday morning, and I suddenly realized that, that I was okay. I knew that Jesus loved me and that his love was my foundation, but for the first time, I could honest, honestly admit and believe in my gut that I was not perfect, but I didn't need to be. I did not care for people perfectly, but I did sincerely care for people in my life, and it was not an act. I was not the smartest guy, but I wasn't stupid either. I made a lot of mistakes, but I also got a lot of things right. Uh, I worked hard. My legal analyses were solid and accurate, and at some time, and at times creative, even if it took me a little bit longer than some others in the office. I was not the best public speaker, but I could get by and I could survive the experience when I had to. I was honest and ethical, 
even though I stumbled off and I knew that I loved Jesus and that he loved me. I knew that I was forgiven. I knew that my wife loved me and that I definitely loved her. Um, I realized that with Jesus in my life, being an okay guy was just fine. I was not perfect, but was an okay guy. I wasn't the best, but I was an okay guy. The surprising thing was that being an okay guy embraced by the love of Jesus was enough for me. The world inflicted pressure and my self-inflicted pressure of either being perfect or being a shameful failure was removed. The peace I felt at that moment was amazing because for one of the first times I was blocking out the voices of the world that said I had to have my act perfectly together or fake it or hide or feel ashamed. Being okay and loved by Jesus felt pretty darn good and it still feels pretty darn good to this day. Now I know that the idea of being okay may not seem overly deep theologically. Uh, I can't even tell you for sure why the idea of being okay was and is so relatable to me. But for some reason it is a truth that when surrounded by the love of Jesus easily moves from my head to my heart. I share it today not to impress you but with the hope that perhaps it may resonate with some of you as it has for me for these many years. Now, obviously, my being okay um, and loved by Jesus did not prevent me from dealing with the fear of asking for help at AT AT&T that I've shared about earlier. Um, But it did help me move through that fear to reach a better place. I still had lots to learn and places to go with Jesus, but saying no to the world's definition of who I was supposed to be was huge. Jesus has lots of titles in scripture, but in very few places does he describe himself with adjectives. In Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, he says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A gentle and humble Savior who loves us is so different than how the world treats us. The world tells us we must figure out how to be perfect and judges us by what we do, what others say about us, and what we have. Jesus offers us a different way that that he hopes we will embrace. He longs for us to understand that he is tenderly working in us to make us more and more like him and desires that we simply speed our way to his private chamber and tell him everything. Charles Spurgeon once said, Christ is a tender-hearted, excuse me, Christ is tender-hearted and bids us to put our lips to his ear and tell him everything. He will not reproach or scold us for what we have done. He will not chide us for our sins. He will not be angry with us for our follies. If we but commit our case to him, he will simply say with a sweet smile, I have cast thy sins behind my back. Come and I will lead you to discover a faith that excels all reason. Jesus was tender, gentle and tender with me during those years that I struggled so mightily trying to be perfect and with being afraid to ask for help and with many other struggles that I don't have time to tell you about. Um, And Jesus continues to be gentle and tender with me as I walk with him. So let me close by being a little bit presumptuous. Um, 
I still don't have my act together. Big shock there. Um, but neither do either any of you. I still rely on myself too much in trying to get my act together, and so do all of you. I still fake it and withdraw too often, and so do all of you. I still let the world tell me that I am damaged goods, and so do all of you. My, 60 year, my 64 years of life tell me that the world has no answer to any of these conditions that we find ourselves in. My 43 years in following Jesus tell me that the only answer to any of these conditions is to pursue Jesus more deeply today than yesterday. If you don't know Jesus, then consider giving him a try. And if you do know Jesus, then pursue him more aggressively. Psalm 62, verses 5 to 8 state, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Verse 11 concludes the psalm by saying, One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. We all want a refuge, don't we? Someplace safe where we can simply breathe a bit. But the world is not that place. The world is no refuge. But Jesus is. He is loving and strong. And as Luke writes in Acts 16, believe in the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Believing in the name of Jesus is simply what we've been discussing today. It is a tug in our hearts, in your hearts, that says, I am, poor, I am poor in spirit. I don't have my act together and never will. I am mournful, tired, and sorry for my condition, my heart problem, and believe that Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross is the only cure for my condition. I want to meekly surrender my life to Jesus and accept his wonderful gifts of forgiveness and leadership. And I want to awake each morning with excitement and follow him each of the remaining days of my life. If this is where you are today, then you simply need to ask Jesus to come into your life. I know it can be hard uh, and scary to make a decision that will change your life. We get stuck in ruts, and even though they may present challenges, they are our ruts, right? And we take some comfort from the fact that we know about our ruts. But when we are confronted with the truth, the time for a decision can be thrust upon us, even when the truth comes unexpectedly. Uh, I have one last story, and this one is from 1995. Some of you may have heard it. I know Lyndon. If you're out there, Lyndon, I know you've heard it. Um, it is an actual radio conversation of a U.S. Navy ship and Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland. This goes, goes back and forth, and so the Americans say, Americans, divert your course 15 degrees to the south, to avoid collision. Canadians, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees south to avoid collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I repeat, divert your course immediately. Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Missouri. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy, 
divert your course now. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. Your call. Uh, If you sense that truth is being shared this morning, then as was the case with the American captain, it is your call to make in response to that truth. Jesus is waiting for you to come to him right now or when I pray in a minute or in the quiet of your own home. If you have any questions, please let us know. Uh, We'd love to help you in your journey to know Jesus. We don't want anyone to face this life without Jesus because the world is no place to be without a Savior. We also don't want anyone to face life after death without Jesus because that is simply terrifying. We're also here to talk and pray with anyone about their ongoing walk with Jesus. We all need a bit of help, don't we? At least I know I do. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. Um, So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, the simplicity of your word, the depth of your love for us, the fact that you care for us so, 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 in such a wonderful way. Father, we want to do things on our own, and yet we realize that we need you. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for always being there with us. I pray that if there's anyone who's, who's listening that has questions or senses that you are calling them, who senses that they can see the light offered by only you, that they will make a decision to, to, to come into your family. Um, Father, we do pray for Jeremy and we pray for Janine um, that you will be with them, that you will heal them quickly, that you will comfort them, and that you will offer your hand of protection for our church and those in our congregation as we walk through these times. Again, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.